Thank you for joining us for the sermon podcast of Northwest Presbyterian Church in Dublin, Ohio. Our church exists to celebrate the gospel through Christ-centered study, worship, and prayer, to connect in community through fellowship, accountability, shepherding, and outreach, and to love our city through sacrificial giving of time, treasure, and talents so that it might flourish as a place where Jesus is known. For service times and more information about our church, visit npcdublin.org. And now, Pastor Dave Shooter. So my goal this morning is to encourage us by showing us that one freedom that God brings to us in the gospel is the, the freedom from the burden, if you will, of having to make our own lives great. I don't know if that burden resonates with you or not, uh, but I think that there is a burden that exists in our world and that I feel in my heart from time to time uh, that is up to me to make my life great. Uh, I feel it, uh, you know, as a middle-aged husband, dad, and worker uh, from time to time, I feel the burden emerging. Uh, I think this is common. Some audience feedback would be helpful here. Uh, I think this is common uh, in feeling the burden between the the gaps in the dreams from 30 years ago uh, and the reality today. And, uh, you know, when I started in this, this ministry venture, this adult life venture, and, and we feel the gap in the burden sometimes. But I think, uh, especially if you are a generation or two younger, I think that you know even more than I do the big pressure that exists to make your life great. I think that you hear this relentless messaging. Some of the messaging goes like this. Uh, as benign as statements like aim for the stars, excel in everything, AP classes all the way through, you might be an Olympian. Every goal is achievable. Make your life excellent, beautiful, and meaningful to others. And some of you, perceptively, I think, look at us, the messengers, uh, and you observe that we seem pretty stressed out. And uh, you think, well, I, I, you know, I hear what you're saying, but I also see how you're living. And you feel what one, uh, one professor described this way, quoting is, that your life is a project, that your task is to make it interesting, meaningful, and beautiful, and to change the world. And you can do it, and you can also mess it up end quote. Uh, It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. Another author called it the unbearable burden of making meaning. And so we chase the project of ourselves through majors, colleges, friend groups, NHS projects, sports, clubs, and we document it all on our social media, and we wonder why we are stressed out. I want to ask you this question, real question. If there was a different way to build a beautiful life, if there was a a different way to build a life that was excellent and meaningful and not all up to you, if there was such a way, would you be interested? If there was such a way, a way to think differently about ambition, 
a way that leads to freedom and not to more burden, would you want it? Would you want it enough to change, to pursue change? Because this is what the Apostle Paul shows us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 to 12. We looked at uh, verses 9 and 10 last week. Uh, you're welcome to go back and re-listen uh, to that message. We won't rehearse much of it today. But Paul says this, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more. And then verse 11, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. And it speaks directly to the burden of meaning making that we feel in our day and age. And so let me suggest right from the outset that genuine freedom, real freedom from the burden of making our own lives great starts with deeply owning, deeply owning the truths that make Christian brotherly love a revolutionary reality, that, that you, the, the actual you who is, not the Instagram you, not the projected self, uh, the actual you are deeply loved by God. Deeply loved, you as you. This is what Paul says as he starts the letter, chapter one, verse four. For we know brothers loved by God. And that secondly, God lovingly took the initiative to bring the actual you into his family, that he has chosen you, the actual you. That belief in Jesus frees us from idols, and idols are often good things that we make essential things, the things that we choose to make our lives great, you know, the perfect family, the enviable address, the impressive job title, that belief in Jesus frees us from having to be enslaved to those things. Fourthly, that God's will for us is to grow in love for other Christians and for unbelievers. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. And finally, that God has a future for the real you, you who is actually sitting in the chair today, and he is in control of that future. 13 of chapter 3, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So he loves you, he chose you, he frees you, he's going to grow you, and he's going to bring you to the future. That, that this is the context uh, which makes uh, love plausible in the Christian community, uh, and this is the context which makes uh, a, a beautiful life possible. That you don't have to construct a beautiful life on your own. That you are the object of God's instigating affection. That God saves you into a community where love looks like giving what is most precious to those who are least naturally lovable, that's us, in order to secure the greatest outcome, which is eternal life. And so how does this starting point of deep love structure our ambitions 
and give us freedom and joy. Well, Paul says, aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The, the application points write themselves. But I'm going to take 20 minutes explaining them to you. <laughs> God loves you deeply. He holds your future. So aspire to live quietly. Now, if I do a responsible job explaining these two verses, I should probably unsettle most of us. It should probably unsettle most of us because these verses push against basic assumptions that we just automatically accept. Assumptions like more famous equals more important, more successful equals more valuable. And, and I'm actually cool with unsettling us on these things because God actually wants to set us more free than we understand. He wants us to be more free, really, than often we want to be free. But before we get unsettled by Scripture, we have to remember that God loves us more deeply than we know. He aspires, uh, he holds our future, and so we're to aspire to live quietly. What kind of advice is this? This is crazy. You know how they have, like, in every school that you go into, uh, I don't, we might have them in the preschool, uh, you know, the, the, and I'm not calling anybody out, but the, you know, the motivational posters, you know, you can do it. And it's like a cat hanging from a chin up bar. And, uh, you know, the cat looks like he's going to wipe out and it's like, you can do it. Just, you know, you beat the cat. And, uh, you know, how, well, what about this? What about aspiring to live quietly? What about bigger and better? What about missing a hundred percent of the shots that we don't take? Well, Paul is not promoting mediocrity. And once we unpack uh, what he says, actually, I think what we'll see is that he's critiquing our biggest dreams as too small. And now this word aspire, uh, it has an interesting meaning. It has a, a specific meaning and a general meaning. The, the general meaning is just aspire. Uh, but the more specific meaning uh, is describing uh, the aspiration that people had to special honor, often by giving money away charitably. So you build a building, you slap your name on it, and you have uh, achieved an aspiration. And there are buildings, if you ever have the uh, opportunity to go to Rome, and, and you see the, that was at the Pantheon, uh, on the top of the Pantheon uh, is basically the name of the guy who built it. <laughs> He's like, I, I think his name is Marcus. I, Marcus, built this. Uh, so for, for the rest of history, I have been remembered because of my generosity. And Paul has just in the previous verses commended the financial generosity of the Thessalonian Christians. And so he is saying uh, in one breath that public recognition for charitable action is not a Christian aspiration. Public recognition for being generous is not Christian. If God loves you, knows you, guards your future, you don't need your name on a brick and a sidewalk to have a legacy. If God loves you, calls you, and gives you a future, you're remembered. You're remembered by the only person who's really worth being remembered by. And so, so Paul says, aspire to live quietly. What's this word quiet? Well, it means to be quiet. Like, no, no, tell me the really 
Bible unlocking thing. Uh, it, it means to live peaceable, to live orderly, to refrain from disturbing activity. Uh, but aspiring to live quietly is not about settling for mediocrity. It's about this, I think. It's about being so at peace with who God has made you to be that you don't need to agitate for your own recognition. Of, of being so at peace uh, with the reality that God loves you because he loves you. He loved you when you weren't lovely. His love is making you lovely. And he holds the future that, that because of this reality, you don't need to agitate to make your life better than what he has made it. It's living with the courage of the reality that God is in charge of my life, and that he's made me the person that he wants me to be, that he is in control of all things so that I don't have to agitate for, manipulate, or fabricate alternate realities. We are free from having to make life all about us. We're free from having to own the burden of making life all about us. We're free just to be loved by God and to be who he makes us to be. So how do we do this? Well, living quietly requires knowing who you are and accepting that as good. Instead of protesting God's design and agitating to be a different you. Uh, it's way different and way less stressful than the messaging of, of our world that says, constantly reinvent yourself. If you don't like who you are, be someone different. That's incredibly stressful because there's about six times a day when I don't like who I am. Uh, you know, usually when I wake up and look in the mirror, I think, oh, <laughs> what happened overnight? <laughs> and, and then you know, I, I, I get to work, and I don't like myself at work, and then I make my annual appearance at the gym, and I, I don't like that, and then I go home, and I fall asleep. If I had to constantly reinvent myself to make me like myself, it would be an impossible burden. Well, what if I had to agitate for that? What if I had to manipulate that? What if I had to constantly post it? What if I had to constantly uh, gram it or whatever you do with it? What if, I, what if you had to, to constantly manage all of those things? God loves you and you are a, a one in eight billion bearer of God's image and you're incredibly special. You're incredibly uniquely loved. So let's, let's just think a little bit about, the, about what this, like it means accepting the, the, the providential boundaries of your life is good. Biologically, God loves me. He made me male. That means that I will be able to do some things and not be able to do other things. I mean, principally, I, I'm thinking about biological things. Um, you know, I, I can father children, but I can't mother children. But maleness gives me opportunities. God's design of me shows me what to aspire to be biologically. Relationally, I'm a son, a brother, a husband, a dad, a friend. I'm not any of these things perfectly. But relationally, my aspirations are to move into these realms healthily. Vocationally, I'm a pastor. I have some gifts and I don't have other gifts. I have a personality with strengths and weaknesses and a body that ages and a context that changes. And I have the opportunities that God brings to me. And I can aspire 
to live in these things without agitating for something different. Spiritually, I'm a forgiven, adopted son of the living God who holds on to my life. I'm a citizen of a kingdom that will never end. My king is returning for all his saints. My forever is part of his forever so that I can live my ambitions on living peacefully as he ordains. And ultimately, and here's the amazing thing, ultimately, I will not miss out on one experience, on one outcome, on one achievement, on one relationship that my heavenly father has ordained for me. So I don't have to agitate for these things. The the meaning of my life is in God's hands, not at the end of my selfie stick. I don't have to agitate for these things. Does this not sound like a more excellent path to a beautiful life than having to fabricate it on your own? Wouldn't a church full of people aspiring to live this way have a far more hopeful message to a world that's wearing itself ragged, constantly reinventing meaning for itself? I think it would be like a a haven, a shelter in the storm. I mean, for six and a half days a week, we're we're constantly trying to make our life meaningful. But but what if the actual declaration uh, of meaning is found at places like the Lord's table? I love you. I gave myself for you. I forgive you. I accept you. I hold your future. Be at peace. God really loves you. He deeply holds your future. Mind your own affairs, which is generally good advice. But actually, Paul means something, I think, more specific that would have been more easily understood by his readers. But it does have bearing once we unpack it on on the way that we do life, too. First century Greek-Roman culture had a a pretty well-developed patron-client system. Uh, and, and let me just explain a, a little bit about what this is, because it had deep political and economic connections and threatened to be very unhealthy in a church. So a patron, a wealthy person in the culture who accumulated clients to boost his sense of standing and honor in society, kind of like social media followers, but people that you actually knew. And a client would be a person who would receive food and material support from a patron and potentially represent his patron in society and exercise influence on behalf of his patron. So it was a symbiotic relationship in that the patron would give food, clothing, and representation to the client, and and then the client would carry freight for the patron in the cultural debates and political debates and in society. So you could pretty quickly see how relationships became about alliances and payback and influence. And here are just a a few reasons why Paul says that this needs to be avoided in a church. So a a Christian patron, the person with the power and the money, and a Christian client, this would create cliques in a church. This would complicate Christian growth if the client, the person with less power, was actually more spiritually mature. So so imagine in a a small church in Thessalonica that that you have a client who's actually an elder or a pastor, and he has to go and critique a patron. You can see the conflict of interest. Paul says you can't do that. What about a Christian patron, not Christian client? Well, this would complicate sharing the gospel. I mean, if my patron, the one that I depend on for food and clothing, comes and shares the gospel with me, do I have to believe what he believes in order to get fed? That would be a conflict of interest. 
What about a not Christian patron and a Christian client? The, the, the patron says, I need you to go ad, agitate and lobby for this non-Christian perspective. Well, the, the Christian client would feel like he or she was dependent upon doing that in order to get fed. Paul says, well, we can't have this in the church. The church is a community of brotherly love. That, that brotherliness is rooted in equal standing in Christ, that all are equally needful of the gospel, all are equally forgiven, all are equally adopted, that God's love is greater than any influence granted by a patron, and that God holds the Christian's future more reliably than a client's future is held by a patron. You may think, well, that, that's great for them. What about us? Well, our relationship world kind of works the same. I do you a favor, you do me a favor. You have more power, I use you to get a little more power. Paul says that, that that's not the way to build an excellent life. That building an excellent life is, is, is modeled on God's generosity to us. That God gives to us freely without strings attached. That it's his recognition of us and his, uh, his support of us and his care for us, which is important. So what does this mean practically for building an excellent life? Well, we're to live out the identity and security that we have in Christ, not in building up our own followings. Now, I, I can only speak from my limited experience, but I, I see this in my line of work. I mean, throughout church history, to the extent that I'm aware of it, for 2,000 years, God has raised up some pastors to prominence. It happens in every generation. There are a few pastors who get raised up to prominence. Most die in anonymity. And the ones who get raised up in prominence, I often didn't expect it to happen to them. So that just happens. And that's far different from the greater number of pastors who work to cultivate followings. And if you follow Christian social media at all, you'll see this happen all the time. Pastors should mind our own affairs. Maybe this is why I don't get asked to preach anywhere. I say, mind your own business. It means that you're free from having to build your own worth based on your fallings. You're also, on the other side of the equation, you're, you're, other side of the equation, you're free from being anybody's person. That, that you don't need to recruit followers in order to build your worth. And this certainly influences the ethics of Christian political engagement. I don't think this is the last word on Christian political engagement because the New Testament describes Christians who played roles in government. Uh, you can see Christians who held public offices, for instance, in Corinth. Uh, but the mind your own affairs uh, needs to inform how Christians would engage in participative political processes. At a minimum, Christian public conduct cannot be divorced from personal Christian faith. You're a Christian everywhere. Integrity is more important than influence. Paul means that it's healthier and wiser for a Christian to potentially exit political relationships than to engage in politics in a compromising way. Or to put it differently, doing good for the public is a worthy goal, but not at the expense of Christian witness. That Christian family relationships, the brotherly love component that he's talking about, is to be prioritized over political alliances. And compromises that undermine our individual holiness can't be made. Uh, if for no other reason than unbelievers are watching, verse 12. 
walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Is there more to say? Absolutely. Christians called into the political realm have a tough calling and they deserve our prayers. And they should also probably take advantage of close confidential pastoral conversations to check their hearts on these matters. Are the alliances that I'm forming healthy? Is my holiness being compromised? Because Paul is pointing us to an enduring kingdom. Thirdly, God loves you deeply and holds your future. Your work has dignity. Now, this might be one of those death grip on the obvious statements to us, that work has dignity. But just think about it in its context that if Paul is urging Christians to untangle from these patron-client relationships, where the patron would provide food, clothing, maybe shelter to the client, and the client would then live this life of agitating for his patron. If Paul said, you got to detangle from that, the implication is some of them are going to have to get jobs. Some of them are going to have to pursue financial independence. They're going to have to reevaluate their work lives. And in the Greek world, this was going to require overcoming a, a cultural stigmatization of manual labor. I realize that's a big word phrase. I apologize for that. Apparently, in Greek culture, more than in Jewish culture, manual labor was looked down on. It wasn't viewed as a good thing. In some of the literature, manual laborers are really disrespected uh, and viewed as kind of second-class people at least because they work with their hands. That's not uh, Old Testament mindset. That's not a Jewish mindset. And it doesn't build correctly off of um, what Paul writes in Genesis 1, uh, what Paul references to in Genesis 1, the creation story. Paul says that uh, we're to work with our hands as we were instructed so that we may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. That work has dignity. In the creation story, Paul knows that God creates humanity to work and to bear his image. That image bearing, being like God in God's world includes work. God creates people to bear his image in Genesis 1.27. The very next thing he does is commission humanity to work. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So Adam goes to work. In Genesis 2, he goes to work naming the creatures. Human work is part of bearing God's image. When sin enters human history and God curses the ground, work becomes toilsome, work becomes hard, but it's still part of bearing God's image. That work has dignity. It's how we bear God's image. So Paul needs to correct their understanding. And he needs to remind them that financial independence is a Christian goal. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So the expression of brotherly love in the church that might result in financial generosity for the needy was not supposed to create a, a perpetual dependence for Christians. Not a, not a different way of, of doing the same old patronage thing. He's saying, no, be financially independent. That the financial independence of Christianity, uh, of Christians in the church community uh, allows for this genuine care for the needy, but then genuine independence for the rest. So what if we pull this all together 
this live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with dignity to, to undo this kind of pressurizing idol of building your life. And how does it actually move us towards a more beautiful life? Well, as said, God deeply loves you. He holds your future. If you're a Christian, you belong to a community of spiritual siblings. That your worth, as we've had sung for us this morning, is not tied to your achievement, to your influence, or even to your network of alliances. You have value just for who you are. That God has given you an identity that you don't need to invent or reinvent. And that a normal, ordinary Christian life, aspiring to live out the gifts and talents that God has given you, in the circumstance in which he's placed you, that this is good and right. And that Christian character in action is really important, even if it's not glamorous. One of the, one of the books that I read, really the only book that I read when John and I were driving across Canada to Alaska was a tiny little book uh, with a, a title that just sounded pretty off-putting, but was remarkable. It's called Dream Small. Dream Small. And the, the thesis of the elder who wrote the book, uh, who is a, a marketplace worker and an elder in his church, is a, essentially um, by, by being told that we need to pursue massive dreams that outstrip who we are in reality. That, that, that we end up kind of missing the beauty of just living in an ordinary life. And, and we end up always chasing and never arriving. We always chase, we never arrive, and we miss out on the goodness of what God has done in making us who he intends for us to be. So here are a few questions that a college professor asks students to get unstuck from the pressure of building the perfect life. These are four questions. I stole them. I give them to you. This is what I do. I steal ideas. I'm an idea thief. So you're feeling an intense amount of pressure to make a, a life that is awesome, beautiful, worthy, and making a community impact, and you're completely stuck. You've changed majors three times, colleges twice, and you don't know what to do, and you go into his office, and this is what he would ask you. He's like, what are you good at? What makes money? What do you enjoy doing? What's good for your community? Those are great questions. They're practical questions. Uh, they are questions that build right off of what Paul is talking about here. I mean, he says, aspire to live a quiet life. Mind your own business. Work with your hands. So if there was a different way to build an excellent life, one that was beautiful and meaningful, but not all up to you, would you be interested? Would you want that? Well, what steps would you take? First of all, and genuinely, faith in Christ. Because that's where knowing that God loves me, that's where uh, knowing that he is in charge of my life, that's where knowing that he has made me the person he wants me to be and is in control of all things, that's where it starts. You believe in Jesus. Do you understand how deeply loved you are? 
That's where a beautiful life starts. Secondly, some of us may need to repent from agitating for or manipulating or fabricating alternate realities. And repentance might look like starting with gratitude. Thank you for making me the me who is. Forgive me for wanting to be a me who isn't. Third, some of these assessments. Aspire to live quietly. What are you good at? What makes money? What do you enjoy? What's good for your community? I I think if we lean into these things, we'll find that there is real freedom that comes to us from what is otherwise the unbearable burden of trying to make meaning out of our own lives. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon podcast. Subscribe to our podcast. And for more information about our church, our values, mission, and ministries, visit npcdublin.org.